0: the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world.
1: Welcome to New Brew, the Project Zion series that takes us through the New Testament by explaining, exploring, and experiencing. I almost said examining. How long have we been doing this? And experiencing the text. So, our guides to the New Testament are Tony and Charmaine Shabala Smith, and I'm your host, Karen Peter. Now, before we begin, I want to remind our listeners you can view all of the New Brew and Hebrew and Shebrew episodes that we've recorded on video on the Latter day Seeker Ministries YouTube channel. In today's episode, we're going to look at the Gospel of John, and I think we talked before that there's a lot of Johns to go around in <laughs> the New Testament, so hopefully we'll get some clarification there, and my own opinion is that, which is always I really <laughs> so helpful you. when we're doing scripture <laughs> study, John, to me, is the Star Wars Gospel because he talks about light and dark and good and evil and all those kinds of uh, Star Wars kinds of uh Illustrations. So that's how I think of it. We'll see how that plays out with our discussion.
2: So uh, let's talk about John. Good. Well, uh John, if you're a reader of the Gospels, John has a very different feel and flavor. Uh, Star Wars flavor is not too bad an, a metaphor, actually. It's, <laughs> Thank a you, George Lucas. A, a sense of this either or in this Gospel that's different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, So it's, it's, it's really important to take this gospel on its own terms, right. And not, not read it over against Matthew, Mark, and Luke, let Mm -hmm. it, let it say what it wants to say uh, in its own way. So,
3: which is sometimes quite difficult because we're used to the other Mm -hmm. three gospels having so much in common. And so, you know, we can get, we can go through reading parts of John and, and then it's like, Oh, well, wait a minute what was, was that in there? I don't think that was in there. You know, things like the Last Supper, it's like, huh, how can there not be a Last (laughs) Supper? You know, that kind of thing. And, and so there is this, uh, it's really tempting to to say, oh, well, John doesn't have this. But I think that the really important thing is that John really does have its own flavor, its own themes. And that has to do with um, the time it was written, and who wrote it, and who it was written for. And so we'll look at that.
2: So as, as our pattern goes and explain, we usually want to start right off with kind of the who, what, where, when, and why. You know, who, what's the context of this particular gospel? And one of the things that scholars have been able to unearth around the Gospel of John is that part of the background of the writing of this gospel is a separation, a painful separation, mm. in which a group of jewish christians somehow connected to the figure of the beloved disciple about which we'll say more later had been a regular part of jewish synagogue going but sometime sometime in the eighth century the eighth decade of the first century in the 80s jewish synagogues really started drawing the line between uh jews and jewish christians that is the the jewish christians who believed that the messiah had come and was jesus and began using quite exalted language for him. That that was a, that was a point at which, <laughs> at which, as I like to say, uh, they needed to move out of Judaism's basement, right? <laughs> and so, sometime in the eighties, uh, there was a, a, a series of prescriptions against the Minim, the heretics, in which in which it was really hard for Jewish Christians to be part of synagogues anymore. And John's gospel reflects that as part of its background. It actually uses the word uh, "apo synagogue." be put out of the synagogue a couple of times
3: and this really is there's like a couple different levels of learning here because one is that quite often christians don't realize that christianity was a part of judaism for about 50 years Um, and it was only again in this usually mid to late 80s when rightly so the jewish leaders said no 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 this is you're you're way different you're two different Um, this, your ideas about who Jesus is, um, is not compatible with our idea of who God is. And so uh, there's this separation. And that's one of the ways that we can kind of, we can date the writing of John Mm -hmm. is that it came after the Christians have been pushed out of the synagogues. And so the dates that we give are about 90 mm-hmm. to a hundred sleep. Yeah. And, and you can see this through the whole gospel, this, this conflict, this, um, feeling orphaned, this sense of being done wrong by being rejected.
2: Mm-hmm. And you'll It see... wasn't a happy separation. Mm-hmm. It was not a happy separation. Um, and yet it was portended much earlier in the first century. I mean, uh, you know, uh, in judah the heart of judaism is relating to god through the torah but for the christian movement the heart of christianity the heart of following jesus is relating to god through jesus christ and so that that was that was bound to have to go at separate ways at some point but john john's gospel just reflects kind of the the trauma of that Mm -hmm. for the community and Charmaine mentioned the word orphan in in john's gospel towards the end jesus jesus on his, his last night with his disciples uh in which Jesus is quite quite wordy in the Gospel of John. It goes on for quite a long time, <laughs> long discourse. There's a lot discourses. of sermons, yeah. <laughs> but Jesus says to them, literally, "I will not leave you orphaned." Right, and so that that's just a, a lovely way to 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 get into the feeling the feeling dimension of of this this community that uh, had had its roots in Judaism, but now was was going a different way because it was following Jesus as the logos the word made flesh and that's the other part of the context so on the one hand is this kind of uh, uh conflicted relationship with judaism on the other hand is a relationship with the hellenistic world in which in the hellenistic world the idea of deity becoming flesh and suffering is is pretty strange it's really strange and yet here in this community is there's the belief that Jesus is a real flesh and blood person who is the incarnation of the divine word. And so, so on the one hand, conflicted relationship with Judaism. On the other hand, trying to make sure that we don't just sort of uh, uh, morph off into some sort of Hellenistic mystery religion. So that's the, that's the path that this gospel is trying to walk. And so we can say that the, the author is writing this narrative, this narrative about Jesus' life based on the traditions that he's got, uh, in order to help his community, uh, uh, kind of walk that line between those Mm -hmm. two different kinds of conflicted realities.
3: And so one of the things that we're going to see throughout this gospel is this emphasis on who Jesus is. And that's the anchor throughout, uh, who is this Jesus? So, whereas like in Mark, um, we don't really know who Jesus is until the centurion names it, you know, or the soldier names him at the end, uh, right at the beginning, we know in this gospel who Jesus is. And that's because the writer is writing to a group of people who are saying, uh, um, who are we, you know, how are we, how are we going to keep our identity? Um, I think one of the things that, well, this is a bit, a bit later, um, so I'm jumping ahead on our notes here, but um, that whereas the other gospels uh, talk about, see, I'm doing that comparing thing. Uh, Whereas the other gospels are talking about Jesus' message of the kingdom of God, John's message is Jesus himself. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. Jesus is with us. Um, And all these different all the light and dark and all those other things Mm -hmm. constantly saying, uh, Jesus is constantly saying in this gospel, I am this, I am this different symbols, but trying to get at these different dimensions of who he is. And the author is very intentional about trying to keep telling these folks who are saying, how do we move forward in this? Um, Who it is that
2: they are focused to be focused on so authorship who's the author once again we don't know uh (laughs) anonymous
1: again
3: (laughs)
2: tradition tradition from the mid-second of course we
1: know it's john it's john (laughs) it's john who wrote revelation and john who wrote the gospel and john who was the baptist and john who was i mean you hear that sometimes second and third john and yeah it's the same john right all
3: different
2: times <laughs> so so well let's let's steer this in a slightly different direction so, so the, the author never names himself and this is true in all four gospels the the authors never say I am so and so writing this text right and so some people say well obviously the beloved disciple wrote the gospel of John and, and he must be John well the name John the name, name John is never applied to a dis- disciple in this gospel and the beloved disciple, that very enigmatic figure does not show up until the passion. So one of the things that we can say is that this gospel has gone through a variety of editing processes at some point in its early history, there is some part of this that probably comes from this, this mysterious figure named the beloved disciple,
3: probably Mm -hmm. oral stories, remembrances, (laughs) um, particular um, experiences that come from a a real, you know, that person who is identified as the beloved disciple or those who followed and have that kind of information that the author
2: is drawing on. One thing we can tell though, is that uh, the beloved disciple who shows up in the passion um, must be a source of some of this because the description of the precincts of the temple in the gospel of John are hyper-accurate. So there's some firsthand knowledge from somebody who's who's been there. Um, scholars ask the question, then, was this gospel composed of sources like Matthew, Mark, and Luke? And the answer is probably, but it's harder to determine. In other words, with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we can, we can, we can put Mark in the middle and show where you know, Matthew and Luke are looking on, looking on Mark's paper, basically. With John, we can't do that. We don't have an independent Second source, but when you're reading the gospel carefully, you notice some things. You notice that the author or authors uh, in the first part of the gospel refer to seven signs of Jesus. So they they may have had an oral source that had that had that was reporting or telling about seven of Jesus' miracles and calling them signs, which is a different word from what the synoptic gospels use. Also, this gospel uh, has what are called seams in it. You can, as you are reading the gospel, you can you can sometimes say, you can see between chapters that things have been pasted together there. Um, kind of like
3: a
1: carpet that
2: mm-hmm. maybe
3: hasn't
1: put, been put in well. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you can see where the line was. And when so, you cut um, and
2: paste a document, and you miss a you miss yeah. finishing a <laughs> sentence there. So uh, the other thing is that this gospel starts with a hymn, the prologue, and that that hymn. Chapter one, verses one to eighteen. That, as a piece of poetry, is separable. Really, though, it's been appended to this narrative uh, as a way to give the reader a sense of this is what this whole story is about. In the beginning was the word, and the word, and the word is with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and so on, which we'll take a look at in just just a minute. And then finally, this gospel has an epilogue. When you get to the end of chapter twenty, you think, "Wait, we've reached the end of it." And then, and then you read on, and it's like. Well, wait, no, there's a second ending. (laughs) So yes, this gospel has been put together out of pieces and sources, but it's, it's a little harder to, it's a little harder to, uh, it's harder to have a, like a, a a control mechanism with with this gospel because we don't have them independently of John. So, so the author, whoever the author was, and it looks like it could have gone through multiple hands um, is using the materials, That they have um, a a poem, a collection of Jesus signs, material from the beloved disciple. And then at some point, a a committee adds an epilogue (laughs) to to the gospel. (laughs) So I'm I'm in I'm opening
1: uh, my uh, olive tree app here with my new revised standard uh, into John. So if I'm new to the book of John. And reading through it. Where would I where would I see? Can you give me like chapter verse where I would find a scene like that?
2: Sure. Um, well, a, a really classic one is uh, chapter seven.
0: This oh is this gosh, is a, this yeah. is a
2: scene that a scribe and actually is created. So, uh, chapter seven, the very
3: last, verse. very last
2: verse seven fifty two through about eight twelve, the story of the woman taken in adultery. Mm-hmm. And the man who got away, probably the story (laughs) story should say with that story. Yes. Ah, guess what? That text is not even original to John. So if you were to take that out, the
3: story, take out the whole story of the woman caught in adultery, and you'll see that it flows perfectly. There's there. And so there's been an incision and (laughs) and then something has been inserted Mm -hmm. in between the text. So you would have. As a seam at the beginning and the end of that story.
1: So the the footnote here, my um, my citation says that most ancient authorities lack this certain little passage here. So yes, you can (laughs) find that. So our listeners want to take a look at what that looks like.
3: Yeah, and and it's ten to fifty two. And it's a fun little piece because um, that story of the woman caught in adultery is. really, really an important image of Jesus forgiving and, and outwitting the, the judgers around. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But the reality is, I mean, this helps us see this whole process of these writings becoming scripture, that it took a very long time. This passage. um, Wasn't in any of the oldest manuscripts of any of the gospels. And, but it was a, a story that had been passed on orally and, when people started started collecting the Gospels together, they're going, wait a minute, where's this story? Yeah. How come it's not in any of the Gospels? Mm-hmm. So it had temporary residence in a part of Luke for a while.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And then another place in John. And then this is where it finally, around the
2: 7th, oh, 8th yeah, century. Yeah, it's late, it's like 8th century. So yeah. yeah.
3: Uh, it finally ends up residing here permanently, but it wasn't there originally. And the oldest, older manuscripts don't have it. None of the gospel ones do, but it was an oral story that people said, we can't lose this. This, this tells us too much about who Jesus is. And so, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. This is not anybody dictating anything. And then the whole gospel is,
1: you know, so this is a. It's really that's a really helpful example for people to go and look for themselves and see because it helps us remember that oh yes this was put together by multiple voices over multiple um, eons of time and to have what we have now
2: so yeah.
1: really important little story and Sorry.
2: so and reading font uh, the intro to the bible that we like to use but also any good commentary on john will will lay out specifically what the different literary seams are in the gospel so so i think it's really important to understand that that writing in the ancient world is a very complicated process. And it was very common to, to add, to append, to edit and so on. It's, it's, uh, it was a pretty, it was kind of a, it could be a very cut and paste kind of activity. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So. Like some people's
1: papers in seminary, not mine, but some people's.
2: <laughs> it happens. It does happen. <laughs> so let's, we'll look at a few features here under, still under our heading of explain. Yeah. I mean, let's go to that. There we go. This is a a picture of the oldest fragment of any New Testament manuscript that's ever been discovered. It's called papyrus number 52.
3: So we do have to remember we don't have any of the original manuscripts that were written for these gospels and what what we typically the older the oldest manuscripts we have are usually copies of copies of copies of copies of the originals, and they already may have some changes because, as we've said, the, the text was not standardized until after 360, four, around 400, and so there's there will be changes in some of those early manuscripts. So this is the earliest scrap, <laughs> this little tiny piece of, uh, of, a, of a manuscript of one of the Gospels. And
2: this is John chapter 18. It's part of John chapter. This fragment is about the size of a three-by-five card. And and uh, handwriting specialists and those who are good at dating ancient manuscript fragments and pieces date this to somewhere in the first third of the second century.
3: So one hundred and twenty to one hundred and thirty somewhere in there.
2: Yeah. And um,
3: which also then helps us mm -hmm. to determine when this was probably first written. We know, you know, we've got the being kicked out of the synagogues on the one hand. And there's all it is already in a text of some kind by 120. So that 90 to 100 uh, it kind of helps to verify that.
2: So that's just a, I think, an interesting feature for people to, to see uh, and see what a manuscript looks, uh, a manuscript fragment looks like. Uh, well, it's uh, a great reason for
1: our listeners to go and watch the video of this so they can see this. this is oh, really yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
2: yeah. So we'll, we'll take a look next at the prologue of John, Uh, as I said before, this gospel begins with a hymn, and the hymn is a hymn to the logos, the word. The Greek word logos means word or reason or rationality or rational structure, so in the beginning was the logos, the rational structure, uh, rationality, the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, or you could translate that second part was divine, Uh, He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, the Logos. Uh, The him language here is because Logos is a masculine gendered noun in Greek. So all things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness. and The darkness did not overcome it. So that's how this gospel begins, very poetically. But uh, while, while I can tell you the Greek is easy to translate into English, it's deceptively easy because these, these few verses here have been the, the subject of literally thousands and thousands of pages of commentary and prayer and reflection and so on. It's, this is we're, we're right into the heart of Christian theology at this point. And the key thing then is down below in 14 and the logos, the word, became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. And then if you drop down to verse 18, no one has ever seen God. It is God, the only son, who is close to the father's heart, who has made him known. So right here in this this hymn, we have some of the highest, most exalted language for Jesus Christ that you find in the New Testament. He is God, the son. He is the divine Logos, who was with God and who was divine, and is the one through whom all things are created, and so the 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 author uh, assumes that his community knows this text. They probably chant it or sing it, or or know it by heart. And this this is like uh, <laughs> this is like the the liner notes then for the whole gospel. So when you get lost in the gospel, you come back to the prologue, and the prologue reminds you who is jesus ah jesus jesus is a flesh and blood person who at the same time is not from around these parts <laughs> <laughs> so that the the prologue is uh really theologically rich and beautiful so when we go on to the endings so this is the what scholars would call the original ending of john uh Chapter 20, these things are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. It's an interesting way to end the gospel because the gospel is written for people who already believe. Mm -hmm. And so probably behind that is the sense that those who, who believe may stop believing. And so this is a reminder that, you know, keep hanging in there with this story, with this text. Uh, coming to believe is an ongoing thing.
3: Right, and I think that points us back to our, the context of these early Christians, um, both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians being pushed out of the synagogue and having to figure out um, what, how do I keep believing? How do I grow in my believing? And so this is uh, one of those little points that, that reminds us what it is that people are struggling with.
2: So I don't think we have enough. Oh, uh, yeah. The epilogue. Sorry. Here we are. Yeah. The epilogue. So then in chapter 21. Oops. oops. Sorry. This is that. This is that piece that has been added on. Uh, There's a resurrection appearance uh, of Jesus at the Sea of Galilee uh, around the disciples returning to their former lives as, as fishermen. But notice the final words. This is the disciple, i.e. the beloved disciples, the one who's just been mentioned. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and has written them. If you stop there, you think, oh, all right. So the beloved disciple did write John. No, because look, and we know that his testimony is true. So there's a we now reflecting on what the beloved disciple once wrote or talked about. But there are also many other things that Jesus did. If every one of them were written down, I suppose (laughs) the world itself could not contain the the books that would be written. So my question whenever I read this is, who's on first? (laughs) It's like like, the beloved disciple authored something, but it's not this completed text. Mm -hmm. And very likely the the beloved disciple authored some little piece around the passion story, which is really important for the gospel of John, but we, the editorial committee, (laughs) we know that his testimony is true and whoever is the final redactor editor says, I suppose the world itself could not contain the the books that would be written. I hope you can get a sense that authorship in the ancient world can be sometimes a very complicated process, quite different from, uh, you know, you or me or Charmaine sitting down at a laptop and writing an article. Quite different in the ancient world. But it also kind of speaks to what you've talked about in some of our
1: other episodes, that there were so many letters and writings going around that people in different communities favored different writings and and such. And so the idea of kind of um, culminating a group that you're gonna carry forward right off the bat you have to let some go you have to choose which is a priority to carry forward which uh, i could see that if you're in that kind of a process even if you're just writing a go- this kind of a, a letter or gospel that statement speaks to that that final statement
2: yeah. yeah and it also helps us understand that the gospels all of them actually are the products of communities right because when i say the word author for, for postmodern Western people, author indicates individual ownership, creativity, blah, 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 and so on. It doesn't quite mean that in the ancient world, but that the community authored this text. And it gives us a window into this distinctive Christian group's way of construing and believing in the person of Jesus Christ.
3: And the community created this text for the community, for a very specific community who's dealing mm-hmm. with specific things. And we get to read this and we get to be benefited by both their struggles and their insights and their wisdom and the ways in which the spirit moves through these writings. But again, it points us back to, this was a practical thing. (laughs) Writing this was a practical spiritual formation, very intentional um, project for the sake of people's growth in Christ in their time. I think that it just it it makes it more valuable. Some people would say, oh, well, that's discounting it and discounting that God can speak to us through it. It's not at all. It's first of all valuing it for what it was. And then we can get into what does this say to us when we don't know how to stay faithful, when we aren't sure what to believe, when the questions are bigger than the answers, all of those things. So you know, I think it's really it keeps pointing back to a community. Writing for a community, and for that difficult um, journey
2: mm-hmm. through
3: the through hard times, through uh, shifting cultural and mm-hmm. religious uh, settings and um, emphases, and so there's it's it just takes us back, takes yeah. us back to to the reality of the people this was written for.
2: I think it, you can read this gospel as a, a gospel that's written for passing through conflicted spaces, mm. you know? And so there, there yes. so there's a, a really deep spiritual dimension to this gospel. And so now let's get to your Star Wars thingy. <laughs> <laughs> um, all, all the way back to the late second century, a Christian theologian by the name of Clement of Alexandria referred to this gospel kind of parenthetically as the spiritual gospel. Mm-hmm. And that sort of stuck. For all these centuries, it is the spiritual gospel in the sense that it loves metaphor and symbol. Uh, it doesn't I, have as
3: many battles, though. Not,
2: not mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: No light, say, lightsabers.
2: Oh, but, bummer. Okay. But there's lots of light. There is lots I of light. am the light of the world. Mm-hmm. I am the living water. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Uh, I am the way. Uh, I am the gate of the sheep. All these sayings that are metaphor laden that point back to Jesus identity, as it impacts those who believe in him, for those who believe in him, he is the way he is the gate, he is the bread of life, and so on. So, so that that kind of meditative style, then just really lends itself well to, I think, spiritual formation practices, and not just using your head to read this gospel, but kind of like opening your soul to it. There's, there's, this is a a soul worthy kind of text to read. And much Um, of it reads as prose. I mean, not just the prologue
1: and the, and the epilogue, but much of what's, um, in the body of the text reads in this really kind of poetic frame that makes it, um, I think more, um, accessible for people to use it in that formational way.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. And, and also the, the language, um, I often tell, tell students that, uh, I I've taught Greek before it's been a while, but if, if. If I brushed up and Karen, if you took one full year of ancient Greek from me, <laughs> uh, you'd be able think,
3: to. I don't think you have a take for that. I
2: don't either. have a take. <laughs> you can read a lot of this gospel after just one year because the Greek is simple. But the, 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 the simplicity of the grammar is a mirage because of the, the depth of the, the, the concepts in it. So I'm uh, still struggling with English. I think we'll, <laughs> we'll just leave that. So um, Jesus talks differently in this gospel. Very much. He talks in long saying, long discourses, right? Like sermons or sermonettes. And the focus of the sermon is almost always on him, on who he is, his identity. And you don't have a lot of those little short, pithy sayings that you have in the, in the synoptic gospels. Um, Charmaine mentioned that the disciples get him right from the beginning, in this gospel, unlike, unlike, especially Mark, where they're still puzzling at the end, <laughs> but right at the right in chapter See, one. They're not
1: as, they're not as um, bumbling and stupid as they come across in some of the other gospels.
2: No, <laughs> they're, not, they're not here. They're, <laughs> they're, they're wait, they seem way more competent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad somebody sees their value. That's good. So uh, the chronology is different too, in this gospel. Uh, Jesus, Jesus cleanses the temple at the start of his ministry in this gospel, not at the end. And Jesus' uh, crucifixion in this gospel takes place on the eve of Passover. He's crucified on Friday afternoon, before Passover begins Friday evening. So he's he's crucified at the time when the the lambs are being slaughtered for use once Passover starts. Whereas in the whereas in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus' last meal is on Passover and he's crucified on Passover day. So it's a different chronology altogether.
3: And one of the things we've mentioned a couple of times is that, you know, the point of Jesus' message is about him rather than about the kingdom of God. Um, And this is actually one of those little things that might give us um, a little window into a developing theology in early Christianity. And we can see part of why that would be. I mean, Christians have been pushed out of synagogues because of Jesus, because of what they believe about Jesus. And it is the thing that will distinguish them from this point on in relation to other religions in Rome. And so um, being able to articulate who Jesus is has been forced upon them. Uh, but it's also now the, the their focus, their primary focus about who, who God is, what God is like, what mm-hmm. God wants for us in this world. Um, and it, this, this gospel is not as eschatological, meaning mm-hmm. thinking about um, either Jesus' return or um, the afterlife. It's, it's more uh, focused on how do we live this out now, mm-hmm. here. And as we looked at the context, we can understand why that would be the case. Um, so, we can start to see the shifting in the theology of Christianity towards Jesus and Jesus divinity and humanity being uh, the central message.
2: So, so there's just so much that's so rich in this gospel related, related to that. And, you know um, for, for example, all these I am sayings, I am this, I am that. And then in chapter seven or eight, I forget uh, Jesus said, makes this, uh, audacious statement before Abraham was I am, and so the, the the gospel is trying to connect Jesus to the God of the Hebrew Bible in the closest possible way. Notice there's differentiation: Jesus is not the Father, the Son is not the Father, but there is a triadic nature to God here: Father, Word, and Paraclete Spirit, right? And the Paraclete is Jesus is the other Comforter. Some of the words. The Paraclete and Jesus are are of of uh, have equality, so we're we're on the we're on the road that eventually is going to lead to the doctrine of the Trinity. We just don't have some of the conceptual language yet for it, but in terms of the narrative and in terms of the, the symbolism, it's all right here in this gospel. So uh, I, it's it's a pretty pretty interesting gospel. At the same time, this high Jesus, this high exalted Jesus, is really 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 flesh and blood,
0: mm-hmm.
2: right? So he weeps at Lazarus's death and the the weeping of, of the crowds and so on. He weeps. And when he dies and when he breathes his last, apparently in this gospel, the beloved disciple was there and saw that when the Roman soldier speared his side, apparently to make sure he was dead, quote, blood and water came out. Now, this is, this is, Perhaps physical, but it's also metaphorical. Eucharist and baptism came out of the crucified Christ. And so there's like a, like that, that picture of a real flesh and blood person who is also the divine Logos, who bleeds, is at the very heart of the, the, the Christian story. And
3: who really died as well. As that's a, another point, part on the, uh, and the arguments on the secular side of things that, that Jesus, the, the Greek idea that a God can't die, you know, a God can't (coughs) suffer. And so, you know, this is a clarification of these, for these Christians that, no, Jesus was fully human. He died like we all do. Um, And that's what makes what happens next more, you know, a a miracle and shows something about the power of God. So, yeah, so there's, the there's, it, it's holding this balance, the divinity and the humanity. Mm-hmm. We don't see uh Jesus get as frustrated with the disciples as we do in others. So we don't see that <laughs> side of the humanity. Uh, but the author is saying in many different ways uh, that it is essential to understand that Jesus was was human.
2: So those are some features of, of the gospel. And I think we'll we'll probably, will now move on to our second phase of explore, and we'll see, we'll start, Karen, see if you have any particular questions about John that you wanted to bring up that we could tackle.
1: I always have questions. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> I make notes as, as, you're, as you're sharing. So um, one is, well, I guess they both have two, two questions, and both of them have to do with um, what's in John that somehow gets lived out differently when we talk about our our christianity in our time so um we forget sometimes when we read scripture that it's relating to what's happening then and you've articulated that with this division the breakup in judaism if you will the big breakup (laughs) and you said that um that judaism was relating to god through the torah Whereas followers of Jesus who were Jews were relating to God through Jesus. So um, we see that in a way lived out now. We see people who throw Bible verses around and kind of relating their experience of being a Christian in that way is memorizing Bible verses and applying them usually to situations others find themselves in. But that happens. Whereas you have other another way of being Christian that says relating to God through Jesus is to act like Jesus acted. So one is doing, one is one is more about the scripture. So somehow those have to be together somewhere. Somehow mm-hmm. there was a separation. Is that, can we trace that in scripture where that began to happen? The the following Jesus meant actually acting like Jesus, and then it became following Jesus became just in believing the scripture.
2: Uh, well, you, you can actually see that taking place in the New Testament itself in different at different points. Kind where of this
3: tug of war towards mm-hmm. one thing and then to the, towards the other.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I would say John leans more towards the belief side, just because of the situation of the of the people right. that written to. Um, this is helping them to have images and words, um, language for figuring out how to make room for belief to grow. And so, but it's, uh, but the things to do to make belief grow are, we see it in the text. So we see, um, Jesus gently leading his disciples one step at a time, Helping them to believe, um, recognizing they don't, <laughs> trying again, doing the little steps, and I. So I think that that is really maybe something we don't off we don't often talk about in John is that there's this sense that this is a patient long path mm-hmm. of following Jesus. Mm-hmm. It, you can hear all the belief language in John, and this is where it's some of the passages that get misused. Um, that somehow you just flip a switch in your head and you believe, and then you're good. You're good forever. Um, in actuality, this is in this gospel. It's it's a much more. It's a slow process, and it's and the authors understand
1: that, and Jesus is all about that as well.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Taking but people- we we forget it when we read it though. Mm-hmm. So one thing Tony that you talked about, I remember when I took New Testament a long time ago, was this phrase, in his name, um, you, you shared that scripture when you talked about through believing you may have life in his name, in the in the epilogue, right before the epilogue, and the original yeah. ending, so can you say something about that, because that's been taken to be almost a magic phrase that we use at the end of a prayer, yeah. without talking about what it means, I think you talked about it in the context of the Lord's Prayer, but can you talk about it here, yeah, what
2: that sure. means? Um, and again, name our context, a context in which uh, what, what the Canadian theologian Douglas John Hall calls religious simplism is everywhere. It abounds everywhere. Everybody's looking for a text they can throw at somebody, um, which, which fails the responsible reading of scripture test because it forgets that the authors of scripture didn't write text. They wrote books. So the phrase in the name of is an old Testament phrase in the name of Yahweh, in the name of the Lord. And the, the idea of the, 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 term name is, is meant to remind people In the Hebrew Bible. It's meant to remind people that God has condescended to be with us. God is not our property. This is a gift that God is, God has, God has made God self vulnerable and revealed the divine name to us. Don't mess up with it. Right. And so, Doing justice and loving kindness is how you uh, live in the name of Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible to
1: I think to that God has lives among us, don't mess this up,
2: would be a kitchen magnet. I think that's something that we all need. <laughs> yeah, have, but have, I'm sorry, go ahead. That one. <laughs> so it in in the New Testament, in the name of Jesus, is not meant to be a magical formula. It's it's shorthand for the life, the whole person. It's we're at the center of the Christian faith for John, but also for the whole New Testament, is a person, not an idea. Mm-hmm. And in John, this person happens to be, happens to be a, a mysterious paradox who is fully divine, fully human. And so you can't turn that just into <laughs> a refrigerator magnet. Sorry, that one doesn't <laughs> in the name of means to connect to the person, not to a list of, of right ideas that you can judge people by. so Or
3: to use it as a power tool mm-hmm. to get what you want from God.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Having life in his name. And in this gospel, life is eternal life. And that's right now. It's not some prize you get after death, mm-hmm. right? John chapter 17. Uh, to, to, to know you, Jesus says, to know you, the living God, and Jesus Christ, you, whom you have sent, that is eternal life. Life of eternal character and quality is right now through believing oneself into. Now, by the way, in Greek, often, it doesn't say believe in, it'll say, it'll say ace, believe into. So there's a process involved in believing into a person. And, and also- Becoming, yeah, right? yeah. And also in this gospel, since since any part of the gospel needs to be read in light of the whole narrative, in this gospel, don't forget, the only commandment Jesus gives his disciples is love one another. And he says, oh, by the way, let me show you what that looks like. And he washes their feet. So a use of this gospel that uh, wants to be dominating of others, uh, diminishing of others, threatening and warning of others, misses the point of the gospel of John. Um, if, you, if if somebody's holding up a John 316 thing in a football game, it's very likely they've not really deeply uh, internalized this whole narrative which is about love and service, similar to the synoptics, but with different language, uh, the, the washing. The, think about it in this gospel, the divine Logos, who is eternal, who always was with God, who is the one through whom the universe has been created, is down here washing people's dirty feet. Um, I don't know how, if you really take that in, you can't go from that to, uh you're out you're out you're out i hate you i hate you Mm -hmm. uh
3: and god is behind me in all of this yeah
1: yeah
2: so so belief belief in john's gospel is not just head stuff it's believing into it's again it is doing what jesus showed us to do wash feet uh love one another as i've loved you so i think that's a way to a way to get at what you're describing which is uh endemic in christianity you know, if you have the right list, you're, you're good. It's like, you
3: these words mm-hmm. just right. Then God is obligated to give you what you want. And yeah. And that's just self-serving yeah. Yeah.
1: and all okay, that's, that's helpful. I think for people who, who grew up using that phrase at the end of a uh, prayer, we're taught to use that at the end of prayer. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and, and
3: it's, you know, and it's one of those things that helps us just to, to refocus, you know, who is it that, that how, how, do I leave this prayer? Well, I leave this prayer with Jesus. You know, I leave this prayer trying to keep on living with Jesus, but if it's used as a prescriptive thing, you must say this in order for it to be a real prayer, then you're just <laughs> becoming legalistic. Mm-hmm. And it's the point that the, the use of that phrase is intended to, to reaffirm that we, um, that we're committing ourselves to inviting Christ into who who we are today, and uh, that's part of, of yeah. our interaction with God. Is is okay? We're going to step back into the world with with uh, Christ's help with us.
2: Yeah, I think that's really really important. Um, in in the name of it, we're talking about a person, and that includes the way of the person. So mm-hmm. we 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 do things in the name and way of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And we pray in the name and presumably way of Jesus by yielding to God. Or
3: with the help of Jesus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because we don't know how to pray. I mean, there's, there's another, <laughs> that's a different author, but <laughs> it can be another way that that phrase can be helpful to us mm-hmm. rather than somehow, um, yeah, may put us in this privileged stance with God.
2: Yeah. There's there's a variety of interpretive challenges in John, but I wanted to see if there's any more questions you have.
1: Those were my questions that I wrote down and we talked about one of the other ones that I had. So we're good.
2: I I think one other interpretive challenge with the gospel, John, is that it because of the context it was written in, it uses this kind of distancing language about the Jews. Hmm. In most of the context in the gospels, the gospel it's clear that the Jews are the Jewish leaders. But the problem is that the phrase the Jews then becomes a kind of uh, well it's 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 a prejudicial term then right, right. jesus
3: was against the jews right. i mean that's how it's been and taken again out of its context and used to disastrous results
2: so we have to be careful when we're when we you know if we have a, a lectionary reading from the gospel of john that where where there's harsh language about the jews it's an interpretative necessity an ethical necessity that we Work with great care around that, so that we don't reproduce uh, centuries of anti-Semitism and centuries of anti-Judaism. It's just, it's, it's, it's actually not fair to the text because we understand, we can understand a community that's that's been, uh, you know, been been a forced exit, uh, probably a necessary forced forced exit, but they feel hurt, and so Mm -hmm. they respond to those who have hurt them with distancing language, right? The, the people, the people who did this to us. But once you understand that, then there's no excuse for, for trying to continue, continue that sort of distancing language. And
3: and so there's some ways of trying to help the hearer remember that. And that is to remember that this is a Jewish author and that Jesus is very Jewish in this gospel and that the, the Passover and all of these different things that, um, are part of Jewish life, are valued. They're assumed to be uh, what Jesus does. You know, he, he is part of those celebrations. He may reinterpret some of them, but he doesn't dispose of them. He doesn't. He's not negative towards them. But And so using the term, the Jewish leaders, is a, an easy way to, to do this. But, um, but even to insert into a sermon to say, This is not a statement against all Jews. This is a statement against um, the leaders who had pushed out this community. And and that's, you know, I think we can't remind people often enough that these scriptures were written in particular contexts of real people trying to to grow in their relationship with God. And to point back to them, um, what are they dealing with? And so but it's it's crucial because, you know, the Holocaust and so many other things that, you know, today there's a a rising number of uh, violent acts against synagogues and against uh, Jews, uh, whether um, religious or secular. And it's uh, and in some people's minds, it is still justified because of their Christian background and an uninformed Christian background. But nonetheless, unless it's questioned, um, that we don't, that gets perpetuated.
2: So just a couple of other things that are interesting in this gospel, I think, that are relevant to us. And that is um, this gospel is dealing with the question, do, do generations of people who are like one and two or three generations removed from the historical Jesus, do they have less access to him than the the first people who traveled with him? And the answer in this gospel is no. (laughs) Um, That is, uh, Jesus is still accessible to people through the advocate, the parakletos in Greek, paraklete, uh, the, the one in Greek that means somebody who's called to stand beside you. And so Jesus promises the disciples the, uh, to send them another, uh, stand, stand beside her. <laughs> and so there's, there's no sense in this gospel that, uh, believing in Jesus centuries down the road from the historical time of Jesus puts you at any disadvantage. And the, the great story, there's the Thomas story in chapter 20, mm-hmm. where Thomas, Thomas gets to see, the uh, Jesus wounds and so on. and, and and believes and says, ah, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, you know, great, you've got to see, but blessed are those who come to believe though they have never seen. So the gospel ends with the promise that we're, we're 2000 years later, we're not at any kind of disadvantage.
3: Because the Holy Spirit, which is there with us, is, uh, is both a witness and a presence of God in the same way. So, I, yeah, I think I love the idea of the, the Holy Spirit being a, a stand beside her. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, that's, I'm, that's pretty literal rendering, but it works. I think, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we with, with our with our different, you know, in, in our different studies of the Gospels, we've asked the question, how does how does Jesus make God accessible uh, according to this Gospel? And uh, obviously through his flesh and blood. Right. Which then is duplicated in the sacraments, in the Lord's Supper. And this this gospel has a pretty, even though it doesn't depict the Lord's Supper, it has a pretty high view of the Eucharist. In chapter 6, it refers to, Jesus says, those those who uh, chew or munch on my flesh and drink my blood have life. And it's... Which would have been like, oh, yes! <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so, but the, the readers of this gospel knew exactly what was being <laughs> pointed to there. And so, and so uh, it's really important to, to recognize that the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, is one of the places that for this author, you Jesus continues to reveal God to us. So.
3: And it's another way that where the author is saying this is how to stay faithful, because um, mm-hmm. in the story, uh, it says after Jesus says this, which it doesn't say really gross them out, but it's obvious that it did, um, <laughs> that many stopped. Following, and so this is again another way of saying okay. So we've been pushed out of the synagogues, but it's because we are we we are willing to do to take Christ in to us this way, and they they have they can't go there. And so it's you can just see this um, ways of helping the the reader know that where they are, are is okay. That um, even in the in probably at this point, the Lord's Supper is very well established as a practice within the Christian groups. And so this is their reminder. This is, this is how I keep following, even though it's hard. And even though I don't always understand what it means, because that's the disciples that did keep following Jesus after he says this gross thing about munching on my flesh and and drinking my blood. Um, Some said, I think it was Peter who said, well, who else is there? to follow. And so this would be a, you know, a way for these struggling, struggling with faith Christians to say, all right, yes, Peter said it for me. Um, Who else would I follow who this is, this has changed who I am. This is the path I choose. So I think we can, we can hear the, the the sermons that could have been preached from this uh, (laughs) in that time. And maybe today too.
2: So let's now go and do some experiencing of the text. Okay.
3: So we're going to use a story um, from the second chapter of John, which is a fun story, I think. And it is the first of the, the miracles or the signs. And it's in a... Uh, Not necessarily a a particularly religious setting. So, um, but before we start, I just want to give our little description of how we're approaching scripture. Um, We come to scripture as writings from real people who are trying to tell us something about their encounter with God or Christ or the Spirit. Um, The the writers are obviously shaped by their culture, their language, and the worldview that. That they have, that they don't have many options with. Sometimes it's what is there. We don't see scriptures as God's words dictated to people, but as people's stories in which if we listen carefully and we may glimpse with them more of who God is. So we want to listen to the author and what the author is trying to tell us about Jesus. And, um, Figure out what is the author's experience of Jesus? And what does the author think followers need to know about Jesus to follow him wholeheartedly? And so that's how we approach this as uh, human writers trying to share with human readers how to um, let, let Jesus be a part of who we are. So I'm gonna start, well, go ahead and read this from John 2, 1, 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? And this we just need to know that here, This use of woman, although it may sound derogatory in English, is actually uh, reverential uh, in this time and place. Uh, What is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, standing there were six stone jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So there's that ending part. This was to help his disciples believe in him. But I think it was also to help out. On the make sure it's a good celebration. So, well, it
1: was his mother asking.
3: <laughs> <laughs> there is the mother part. You know, he was a very wise person. He'd listen to his mother. <laughs> so, first, we have to start. This is sometimes an uncomfortable passage for people, but we have to start with the realization that this author doesn't care one whit what we think about drinking alcohol. Um, this is part of the culture, it's obvious in the story that part of the purpose of this beverage in the story is to loosen up the party and that it's accepted from by everyone and especially Jesus, that wine is an important part of this gathering. But Jesus did something quite unexpected besides making really good wine. He took the vessels used for ceremonial washings. And here, think about hand washings. Mm -hmm. So uh, as a, as um, people would come to the celebration, they would ceremonially wash their hands. And so if you think about it, there's six stone jars, 20 to 30 gallons of water that has been used to wash people's hands. So you get to sense that this is a large wedding celebration. There is a lot of people here. And so if they run out of wine, there's a lot of people who are going to notice this and be a little unhappy. But Jesus takes these vessels used for ceremonial washings, and he turns them into party items. Um, He takes what's been used to purify and brings forth celebration. And, you know, it might not be as radical, but it's just a way to think about it as, as taking communion trays and using them as Frisbees or having like jello wrestling in the font. It's not quite that radical but but he is taking things that would have been seen as as religious and doing more, changing the ways in which they're used. Not denying what they're used for, but adding something. And this, so this is a theme that you'll see throughout John. Uh, sometimes it's called replacement Um, Jesus takes common religious practices or festivals and by his actions or words replaces them with a new view or a deeper view of what it is that God is doing or what God wants for people. So in this case, the taking of these vessels and turning them into something that would help in the celebrating. So Jesus takes The ritual and replaces it with an evidence of the generosity of God. It's a a neat way to think about it. So I want you to just take a moment, and if you have pen and paper or uh, a keyboard, I, I want you to just think about this in your own life. Is there a religious idea or practice that may no longer fit for you. It no longer holds significance for you, but that you still carry around with you. So just think about that for a minute and write it down. This can be a a difficult process because as we go through life, um, we learn new things. We pick up new things. And sometimes that means Letting go of some things that, though they may have been meaningful previously, aren't now. So just think about something that no longer has significance for you, but you carry it with you. So, and this is an imagination step. Where might your imagination and your spiritual need take you? So imagine Jesus Replacing that practice or idea and instead bringing something life-giving or something that's radically needed in your life or world-changing into your life. So just take a few minutes and we won't take that time right now, but um, to think about how you're offering this uh, practice to Jesus, what he might make out of it in a new way that would point you more towards the love of God. And our imaginations with the Spirit's help often take us surprising places. So another one of the themes that we have in John is the power of the common. Constantly, we're reminded in this gospel that Jesus is human. And in this first miracle or sign, Jesus takes a common experience, going to a wedding and a common element, water, and makes it some place where, where belief can grow. And you'll notice in this story, he does not draw attention attention to himself. He doesn't like stand up, roll up his sleeves and say, "All right, everyone, watch this and believe." No, it's done quietly. In fact, only those filling the jars and those overhearing his instruction even know that Jesus is involved. And the purpose for doing this is to reveal his glory and for his disciples to grow in belief. So this isn't about drawing attention to ourselves, but it is about using the common things in life. So have you ever been stopped in the middle of making your way through a regular day, a common day? By a beautiful thought or a breathtaking sight or a solemn clarity and think to maybe today, maybe yesterday, sometime when something common took on an uncommon depth and meaning. And just reflect on that for a minute. And if that has happened, and you can remember a time, then a question to ponder is, where in the commonness of this day am I willing to be surprised by my faith stirring? How might I invite Jesus to take elements of this day and reveal them to me as new light, the best wine, new freedom,
1: or hope for the future? amen. Thank you, Charmaine. I always appreciate the experiences that we have at the um, end of these um, scripture conversations, whether it's New Testament, Old Testament, or um, or Hebrew episodes that have to do with women. So this has been a wonderful way to just kind of unpack John a little bit. Do you have any last Comments or last thoughts that you'd like to make about this gospel before we close this episode?
2: Those who do the truth come to the light. That's from John. Uh, so doing does matter in this gospel, um, but it's governed by light. <laughs> so I, John, the Gospel of John is a gospel where you kind of want to sit down, light a candle, and just. <laughs> sit with the passage for a while it's that sort of text
1: mm-hmm. yeah I, all right
3: that's what i would say too is is let's let john be a companion to you don't don't read it just to to get bits and bobs and you know things that you can can use let the whole
1: story um invite you in All right. I want to thank you again for being our guides through scripture, um, especially these new brew episodes. I think a lot of people, when they read scripture, go to the Gospels and they go to Psalms and that's kind of their their food there. So we've been exploring a little bit more about how to um, unpack the Gospels. So I'm going to close with a comment from um, Kierkegaard and he wrote this. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obligated to act accordingly. So I think that probably goes right with what you have said about John's gospel today. So with that, we hope our listeners will join us for our next episode. And until then, I'm Karen Peter. I've been with Tony and Charmaine Chavala-Smith, our Scripture Guides, Capital S, Capital G, and we hope to see you next time. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to Project Zion podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher or whatever podcast streaming service you use, and while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines.